Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. Good morning again. If you would join me in Revelation chapter 2. It's a common question, at least in the South, to to hear people say, are you a Christian? Have you ever heard that or asked that? Are you a Christian? Nobody? Nobody that's foreign? Uh, okay, good. This is a little bit interactive up here, right? There's, this is not TV. Are you a Christian? I think a more biblical question would be, are you Christian? There's a significant difference between are you a Christian and are you Christian? Are you a Christian means which people group do you identify with? Are you a Christian implies us working on imitating and emulating Jesus Christ. Are you Christian means that you personally are wearing it, investing in it, versus are you a Christian, you're a part of it, identifying with the group of people. Are you Christian seems to imply it's personal. We take it serious versus collective, where we're all doing a different part. Are you Christian implies that as much as I know or, or have known, I am reasonably growing in Christ's likeness. I mean, when we say yes to Jesus, we don't immediately become like Him. We are justified by Him, but we are becoming more and more like Him through a sanctification process. But as much as is reasonable in the amount of time that I have walked with Jesus, I have experienced reasonable growth to be like Jesus versus being a Christian, which just implies some sort of trajectory. Are you Christian implies intentionality, whereas being a Christian implies that you made a choice of whom you were going to belong to. Are you Christian implies it's personal. Are you a Christian implies that it might be social. Are you Christian means that you compare yourself to Jesus Christ. Are you a Christian means that you're comparing yourself to other Christians. My fear is which road, when we, when we talk about the, and I'm beating us up for the question, I think we get the question, but we need to move beyond belonging to a group of people that we think like and we need to move beyond that into becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Am I like people who follow Jesus, or am I like Jesus? Otherwise, there is a slippery slope, my friend, where you are only acquiescing to the culture. Not the culture of the world, but even the culture of the church. And sometimes the culture of the church does not represent Jesus Christ. My implication here is for me is that when we say yes to Jesus, we have no idea what all we're saying yes to. But it's one big yes. It's only one yes. Jesus commands us that when we say yes to Him, we pick up our cross and we follow Him daily. And then every day is another yes. But if I'm going to be a Christian, then every day I get to ask myself the question, am I going to be obedient to this thing that God asks me? What I don't find in Scripture is us having a choice to make. When I said yes to Jesus yesterday, that implies a constant yes from now on. And the point that I don't say yes, I am moving away from Christ. Think about when we pray. There are three answers, maybe four. We'll say four. When we pray... We ask God for something, and God says, I'm just going to give you a hint. God says yes. God says no. God says not right now. And there may be a fourth. It might be a maybe. Let's see. Somewhere or another, though, when God asks us for something, 
we do the same thing. We tell him yes. We tell him no. We tell him not yet. It's interesting to me that when God speaks to us, we treat him the same way that he treats us. But listen, we are the commanded. We are not the commander. We don't have the luxury to yes, no, or not yet, God. Ours is to follow. His is to lead. My fear is that when we claim to be a Christian, we start comparing ourselves, our obedience, to the obedience of other people around us. And when we do that, we're going to fall far short of what God has actually called us to be and to do. And we end up in a place that we didn't intend to be in. Our hearts ends up being much harder and more difficult than we know that they really are. We no longer have Christian self-awareness at all. We think we're one thing, we're another. But we're at least better than the person we worship beside. Or maybe two people down. So what did we say yes to? Well, Colossians chapter 3 tells us some things. We're going to follow up with that next week. But there are some things that we take off in our character. We won't talk about those today, but there's also some things we are commanded to put on. So I put together a list here. We are commanded to put on holiness. And he says that we are commanded to put on compassion in our hearts. That's much different than compassion in our hands. Compassion in our hearts implies the motivation by which we perform an action. So I can be, a lot of people can be compassionate with the wrong heart. You know what I mean? They do the right thing for the right people, but their hearts are not right in doing it. So when Paul tells us what to put on, he actually tells us with what motivation to do it. To do compassion in your heart. If you will have compassion in your heart, you will have compassion out your hands. Put on comp uh, compassion in our hearts. Kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, and above all, usually, that's a hint. Above all, it's usually always the same thing. Anybody want to guess? Love. Above all, love. Love is the super glue that ties it all together. It's the motivation. So this life then serves as a witness to what we are to put on. When the world sees us, they shouldn't see Christians, a, 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 a Christian, a, a, a group of people who have similar thoughts and have absorbed certain doctrinal beliefs. When the world sees us, they should see Christ, uh, Christ himself. We then are a witness to the gospel. We have witnessed it, but we are a witness of it. What is the gospel? The gospel actually means good news. The good news of what? We're about to celebrate Christmas, and we say Christmas is the good news of Jesus' birth, right? But the good news is not the birth of Jesus. The good news is that Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, but also that he taught us what it looks like to glorify the Father. Also, that he died in our place. Also, that he resurrected. Also, that he ascended on high. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. His life in us. And, and for those of us who can't remember to live the life of Christ, he then took his very nature and character by his spirit and placed that inside of you too. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. Christ in me, through me. And we are witnesses to the good news. But when we reduce that to a series of events, the good news is the birth, the good news. No, the good news is Christ in us. That's the best news. And God had a choice of how he was going to get that word out. And you remember, in his choosing, he chose flesh so that Jesus could become our kinsman redeemer to die for us. But he became flesh, but born of a baby. Wouldn't it make sense that Jesus would just show up in the desert somewhere and start shouting forgiveness of sin, like John the Baptist? Wouldn't that be great? We don't know much about John the Baptist growing up. But immediately, Jesus would have the platform. But the first proponents of speaking the gospel message was to a bunch of shepherds, because Jesus wasn't old enough to talk yet. 
These were witnesses of good news that gave the good news away. And then that begins the pattern. Everywhere you go, you see people who benefit from the good news are the ones that are sharing the good news. Jesus doesn't do it. He has people who were witnesses of the good news do it. And then as he leaves, the last thing he says to everyone who is a believer at the time, you will be my witnesses to the uttermost parts of the world. And this caught on pretty quickly because just within the first century, it had moved from Jerusalem all the way to the Roman Empire. And churches were being established everywhere. And within just a few hundred years, the entire Roman Empire had become Christian. And then ultimately, there were outposts that began to be missionary hubs that were sending the gospel all over the world everywhere. These folks took it seriously to be witnesses. They were like Christ. They lived like Him. They forfeited their homes. They forfeited their lives. They forfeited their jobs. They forfeited everything because they said yes. And when they said it the first time, it was an implied yes from now on. But for some weird reason, when we say yes to the gospel, it's every time He asks, we have to consider, are we going to say yes or not? Are we going to be obedient to that? How comfortable is it? What's the, let's put it in a, you know, how uncomfortable am I willing to be? But that's what happens when you identify as a Christian instead of living out the life of Christ. Let's look over to Revelation chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Jesus is looking at the church at Ephesus and he likes some of the things that he sees. <clears throat> Now listen, right out of the gate, if Jesus' if Jesus's bride is the church and he is purifying her, anytime that Jesus were to say, this about you, I really, really like about you. So, so those of you who are married, if you ever look at your wife and you maybe comment on something that you particularly like, that thing usually, you should think, they take note of that. People take note. when. So the church today should take note of what Jesus likes when he looks into his bride. So that's what I intend to do this morning. Revelation chapter 2, this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It, it reveals to us His character, His nature. Uh, it is composed or compiled of revelations, uh, different revelations of Christ. But the book is the book of revelations. Uh, but it only reveals one thing, and that is who Jesus Christ is in the church age. Now, about 75% of the book of Revelation is actually grounded and rooted in the Old Testament. And so, remember this, the book is really, although it's apocalyptic, it's not really about the future. It's about understanding who Jesus is. It's the revelation of Him. So when we look at chapter 2, we don't want to ask ourselves a bunch of questions about, well, who is this really written to? And who? That doesn't matter. What we're learning is that the character and nature of Jesus Christ is represented here. That we cannot miss. Revelation chapter 2 and 3 are super easy for us to understand in that light. It's written to seven churches. These two chapters were written to seven churches. These were, had become missionary hubs at the time. And so Jesus was giving them, sending them out their report cards, letting them know what he saw and what he expected of their future. So verse 1, to the angel. That word angel is the word angelos, which just means messenger. So these churches didn't literally have angels that were in charge of the churches. These are just the ones who speak the message that was given to them by Christ to the congregation. Most likely, these are the pastors of the churches that are reading these letters from, from Christ uh, through the hand of John. So, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, again, this is apocalyptic language, and I'm not going to get into all of that today because this is not an apocalyptic message. But this is Jesus. How do we know this is Jesus? Because it's red, right? Jesus only speaks in red. <laughs> Something in there about the blood, and I don't know how all that goes, but... Uh, let me just take a second and say this. The red letters are not more weight, weighty, they're not weightier, not more important, not more powerful, not more spiritual than the black ones. Scripture is very clear. All Scripture is given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
the black ones and the red ones, exact same importance. The only reason the red ones are called out is so we can see exactly what did Jesus say, but that doesn't make them more powerful than the black ones. We, we have to make sure that we understand that every word in Scripture is equally inspired by the Holy Spirit. The red ones do not carry more weight. But all of that said, these are the words of Jesus. Verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So we see three things in this particular passage that we should want to emulate. The first one is this, patient endurance. Patient endurance. Verse 2, he says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. And then in chapter 2, verse 3, he kind of flips the words and he says, I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. Now, when we talk about patient endurance, we're, all we're really saying is that we are sure of ultimate victory. We currently, as a church, are somewhere in between already and not yet. We have already experienced the work and the promises of Jesus Christ, and we have plenty of evidence that we win in the end, that the gospel wins in the end. But we have not experienced that yet. It is still a hope. We know that it's coming, but it is still in the future. So we are between already and not yet. While we are waiting on the not yet, it is the already that gives us confidence and boldness to keep waiting patiently, to keep digging in, to keep forbearing and loving and forgiving and manifesting all of the fruit of the Spirit. It's the already that gives us enough evidence to bear up under the weight. It's where Christians get their boldness. It's where Christians get their confidence, is remembering and applying the promises of Jesus Christ. But if we're content with just belonging to a people group, just associating with some thoughts, when it's time to bear up, we will give up pretty quickly because we don't have the substance that it takes to bear patiently, to endure patiently. And if there's anything that gives evidence to the world around us today, it's what Christians do while they wait in difficulty, in hardship, in pain, in suffering. Those are the things that the world looks to and says, is that real or not? How many Christians have we ever known that are Christians? They are a Christian. They associate with Christianity. But when living gets hard, they fall away. There's lots of reasons why we would do that. It's because we have forgotten the already. Oh, it's so easy to forget the already. Listen, if you're distracted by the things of the world and you're living in the influence of the culture, you will forget the already pretty quickly. That's why it's so important for us to be surrounded by godly people and to make sure that we're getting a steady diet of the truth of God's Word because if we're not... Satan is going to throw so many distractions that you'll forget the already. And when you forget the already, you'll forget the bearing up patiently. And there is no greater deterrent to the world than when they watch a Christian fall away when they're hurting, when they're struggling, when they're battling, broken. So we have to make sure that our lives are planted and we have deep-rooted confidence putting down benchmarks, knowing that God is faithful. Now again, you can talk yourself out of that. Remember, one of the most proven promises, I'll say it's a promise, that Paul gave us is that bad company corrupts good morals. When you are a Christian and you're influenced by the world, you're only a Christian when you're around other Christians, 
you won't have the confidence that it takes to speak boldly, to live boldly, to take risks for the glory of God. You won't have the boldness it takes to, to step out into complete obedience. It's proven time and time again. You'll make decisions like the people you surround yourself with and the things that you surround yourself with. I mean, these folks, these folks are being arrested. They're being killed. Their stuff's being confiscated. What are they doing in response? Patiently enduring. And we want to be, we want to be Christians that patiently endures. And, and Christians who patiently endure makes up a church that patiently endures. And we ought, to, we ought to, because of the already, we ought to not care what the culture says. You know, everybody's looking to be offended today. And everybody's looking to make sure that we're not offensive. And so we have to listen to what culture says because we're, we're trying to reach the culture, right? We have to take into consideration what culture thinks about things. It's not how Scripture responds. Scripture doesn't respond that way. Now, while we don't intend to intentionally be offensive... Let me just remind you of something. Jesus said himself, the cross is offensive. Paul said the cross is offensive. It's an obstacle for people. When we try to reduce the very thing that should be offensive and make it not offensive, we have squelched the voice of the gospel. Pastor Blaine, I just don't think I've got what it takes to be so bold. Well, the gospel does that inside of us. If we will surround ourselves with the gospel, the gospel will provide the energy it takes to be bold. When you're living in the already, instead of comparing yourself to other Christians, other Christians may not have what it takes, but I promise you the gospel of Jesus Christ does, the cross of Jesus Christ does, and the spirit of Christ does have the ability to make us bold in Christ. But if you want to live in your little I'm a Christian world instead of I am like Christ, there's a huge difference between those two realms. That's not the only thing that we see here, though. Look at verse 2. Read the first half about patient endurance, but look at this. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. So here's the second thing that we ought to... They knew the Word of God, and when they heard a substitute or an imitation, they called it out for what it was. When they would listen to a podcast or they would watch their favorite evangelist on TV or they would read a book or an article or somewhere, they were very quick to be able to say, that's not true. That doesn't bear up under Scripture. Scripture is the chief. This doesn't bear up. This doesn't bear witness to my spirit. And they were able to call it out for what it was. There were many people who claimed to have authority to be sent ones by God to teach things about God. And this church in Ephesus was able to say, nope, you are not of God no matter what you say. You are a charlatan. Well, they wouldn't have said that because that didn't come until much later. But you are a fake. You are an imitation. They were theologically rooted enough to spot untruth. And I, I love the fact that they were, they were able, in one of the most difficult times, m- much more difficult than ours, to not acquiesce to the culture. In verse 6, he says that Jesus said that he agreed with them, that they hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So I'm going to talk about that group for a second. I think it's very important, and I'm just going to give it to you fairly raw. You may have to have conversations later, uh, but I uh, want to give it to you the way it is. So in Ephesus, there was a temple there. It was one of, the, one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was a temple to Artemis, and how you would worship at this temple, and people would come from miles and miles and miles away, and they would worship with temple prostitutes. It was their act of worship. Now, can you imagine living in such a debauchery, such a a terrible period of time where people would not only, you you know, I can get, and I shouldn't say it like that, but I can get people, you know, hiding sin down a dark alley and trying to get away with it because they feel shame and they feel bad and they know it's wrong and they don't want to put up with us. But to be able to display the temple to Artemis on top of this high mountain and people standing in line waiting to worship with temple prostitutes, I mean, right out in bold day, and every other store was a little shrine where you could buy idols and other things associated with temple prostitute worship. Now, I don't know about you. There's, there's a lot of division in our community, and there's a lot of arguing and backbiting and lots of untruths that are... But we don't have the temple to Artemis. 
And this is the launching place of the gospel? It's pretty incredible if you think about that. And these people, these Nicolaitans, they, their message, boldly, these were Christian people. If you ask them, are you a Christian? Yes, I am a Christian. Here's what they would say. Christians would say to these Christians, do you not know how wrong that is? You shouldn't be doing that. They would say, that's Old Testament. That's in the Old Forbidding temple prostitutes, that's in the Old Testament. We have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are in a season, a spirit of grace, forgiveness, tolerance, acceptance. We enjoy worshiping this way. We're going to continue worshiping this way. You are so old-fashioned. You're still living in the Old Testament. Can you imagine that? Of course you can. I hear that almost every day. Well, that's Old Testament. Now we have a license to sin if we want. Nobody would say it that way, but ultimately that's what we're saying, right? Licentiousness. Church, the real church is like, that's, you know, I mean, yes, the Old Testament talks about temple prostitution, and, and no, the New Testament doesn't talk about the temple to Artemis. But that's not God's heart for His people. By principle alone, we will be able to say, that's not God's heart for marriage. That's not God's heart for family. That's not God's heart for the church. That's not God's heart for the community. Can you not see this? And they drew a line in the sand and said, no, culture does not get a shape, theology. Nothing but God's Word. And Jesus said, I applaud you on that. Good work. You drew the line close and you differentiated between being Christian and being a Christian. There's a third thing. Spotting false teaching. Boy, we want to be that kind of church, don't we? Be a church that loves the Word of God. I mean, the worship songs that we sing come out of the Word of God. The way we greet one another comes out of the Word of God. Our, our study, the curriculum that we use, straight from the Word of God. We rejoice in the Word of God. We won't make stuff up and just draw rational conclusions. Let me tell you, where there is error in your doctrine, in your truths, when you start making allowances for errors or concessions or what's it called when you, when you barter with somebody? Compromise. When you compromise a truth, it begins to chisel away at every other truth. All truth lines up together. If one of those truths is a false truth, it will, it will undermine eventually every other truth. And so we need to be able to spot error and not just hold on to truths that are convenient for us to hold on to. Everything must come through the Word of God. You can actually remove confusion in the culture. You can remove, and I know there are people who are confused. We don't know how we think about a certain issue or, or another issue. or how, how, how should a Christian think about? How should a Christian think about? And so we actually put our minds together. We have collective thought and we say, here's what Christians think. The question is not what have we agreed that we're going to believe. The question is what does God's word clearly say? And then everything else is derived from principles that we clearly know. Not what can we agree about a subject or a topic. That's why Jesus, or that's why Paul says that everything should be worked out in our life. We should pray by prayer, supplication, make our requests be made known to God. And he begins to change our character as a result of that. Now, you can remove those confusing things in your life, those things where you don't know. Don't come say, well, and, and honestly, I deal, I've, I've been doing this a long time, and this is probably a little bit too off the cuff, but I've been doing this a long time. When the church stands for something that somebody, that a Christian doesn't stand for, what do they do? They find a church that agrees with them. Right? Where can I go and do that and not feel bad about it? Now, I'm not saying that every church, the strongest churches are the most, you know, doctrinally sound I'm just saying that we don't get to derive our truths based on majority but upon God's word this church isn't a, a, a crusty old-fashioned church right old-fashioned old-fashioned think about that how many of you know what I'm you, you have a mental thought when I say old-fashioned 
Yeah, so let me ask you this. What did you wear to old-fashioned days before they invented overalls? I mean, how far back do you go? What did they, what did they wear? When, when overalls wasn't created yet, what did you wear to church on homecoming or old-fashioned days? I don't know. I'm not really asking. I'm just saying this. Is the Word of God alive? Is it true? Does it speak life? Every generation, every heart in every generation does, is the Word of God alive? Then how in the world can churches be old-fashioned? If the gospel keeps speaking life into every generation and keeps rising up to the test and is incredibly relevant in every generation, how can we keep saying we need old-fashioned? It doesn't make sense to me except by methodology. We're wanting things that made us comfortable. Things that remind us of another time. And what we should be reminded of is the already moving to the not yet. That the gospel is still speaking to hearts, not how am I comfortable in worship. And what thoughts or methods were popular or that worked for me. But what would be relevant to the needs of the community today? Ephesus were asking themselves that question at one time. Look at this. He says that they were very zealous. They were specifically zealous for this doctrinal depth and they were zealous specifically for this endurance. And he says this, you have not grown weary. Orthodoxy is truth. Orthopraxy is actions. And the implication here is they have not grown weary in what they believe and they've not grown weary in what they do. How that lives itself out. And you have patiently endured. I mean, this, honestly, every other church would be reading this letter at this point and go, man, I wish we were more like that. Doctrinally sound, pointing out falsities, take, taking good hard stands in the culture, not acquiescing. Man, they're not old-fashioned. They're cutting edge. They're out there. They're... They're influencing the community. Why can't we be more like that? But right in the middle of all that encouragement, the things that we want to be, we get this in verse 4. But I have this against you. Now, you know, this sounds like a dialogue between a husband and a wife. right? This would be very similar to a, you know, well, let's talk about it. We need to talk. We've got something we need to talk about. I don't like it so much. I mean, I love this and this and this, but this, boy, if we could work on this. But I want you to see, Jesus isn't, he's, he's, not, he's not a politician. He, he's not playing politics. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. I mean, that is strong language. That is, you ain't what you think you are. I love what you know, and stand for. And I love what you do and how you do it. But you've fallen from your motivation. You've left your motivation behind. Let's, let's just unpack that for just a few seconds, all right? I love that you're pursuing doctrinal purity. I love that you're well taught. I love that you're patiently enduring. but you're not doing it because you love me. Is it possible that a church can be doctrinally sound, morally sound, and even their practices could be sound without the presence of Jesus Christ? I think the church at Ephesus proves that it's possible. Is it possible that that's going on and you don't know it? That's the most terrifying thought in the world is that you'd believe right and do right, but not from the right place. Jesus said, you think, you act like you're doing this for me, but I am patiently enduring you. But my patience is wearing thin, and if you don't get back to the right motivation, I'm actually going to remove my presence from you. 
All right, so I want to shift gears real quick for the next few minutes, and I want us to turn over to Acts chapter 19. I think it's only fair that we look at Acts 19 because that was the first love of Ephesus. This is the founding of the church. Believe it or not, we know more about the church at Ephesus, and we can watch its trajectory more clearly than any other church in Scripture. Uh, You might find it interesting to know that the book of Ephesus stands alone as a book to the church at Ephesus. You also have 1 and 2 Timothy was written by Paul to Timothy while Timothy was pastoring the church at Ephesus. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John was written by John, of course, to families and to the church, and he also was an elder at Ephesus. And so we begin to see this, wow, we know a lot more about the book of Ephesus than we realized we knew. Especially the foundation, and I love the founding of the church at Ephesus. Now it's also interesting that Acts chapter 19 all the way up to Revelation chapter 2 is about 60 years. It's not as book, 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 all written at the same time. There are 60 years between the founding of the church and Revelation chapter 2. 60 years of ministry, of transformation. 60 years of cleaning it up. By the way, in September, we celebrated 70 years as a church. More on that later. Everything that caused the church at Ephesus to be birthed is everything that would make us wildly uncomfortable today. If you want to establish a church in a perfect place, perfect people don't recognize their need. The best, so, so the Lord looked over all of the world and said, where do I want to start the next church? I know. Let's go to the Temple of Artemis. Let's go to the deepest, darkest hole in the world and let's put the gospel right there. Why is it that the church today tries its best to avoid anywhere that there's darkness? Trying to insulate ourselves with each other. Trying to make sure that we keep ourselves spotless and clean. Truth of the matter is, the gospel is more needed in the darkest places possible. Well, I think Ephesus proves that. We're going to talk about that in just a second. I mean, this, this, Paul goes into Ephesus and immediately starts driving out demons and teaching them. Now, he, he first starts with the gospel. He's walking down the street and he's teaching the gospel and, and not very long, there's a following behind him. And then there are some folks who start hearing what he's teaching. They can draw some conclusions and they say, you're out of your mind if you think we're going to allow you to teach that here. And they started arguing with him and he stepped away from those that are arguing and he took the ones that were truly hungry for life change and there were some who were there and he took them down to the school of Tyrannus and he taught them there. Uh, on a regular basis for a period of time. Paul actually stayed in Ephesus for quite some time as the church was being birthed. And so rather than arguing and winning fights in the street, he just took those early disciples and he began to mentor them. And as he sent them out, as was always the goal of every missionary movement, was to send people out into the relationships Life started turning upside down for people. I mean, the whole socioeconomic climate of Ephesus began to change, and anybody who was making money on sin immediately got put out of a job. I mean, these temple prostitutes no longer had lines forming, and all of these people who had shrines to Artemis were no longer able to sell idols, and all of a sudden these weirdos had turned everybody into weirdos, and the weirdos were normal, and the sinners were the weirdos. Verse 19, midway through, the seven sons of Sceva. They watched Paul cast out a demon. I'm not going to read very much of this story. But they watched Paul cast out a demon. And the, the Bible says that they were the sons of a Jewish itinerant exorcist. I mean, can you imagine taking that aptitude test in high school where it told you what you ought to be when you grow up? And it's saying you should be a Jewish itinerant exorcist. I, and they, he's not even a Christian. And so you, you, I guess you're just training your kids to just walk along people, tell them they got demons and cast them out. And I don't know how they do that. It really doesn't even matter. I, knew that, I know that it drew a lot of attention to the demonic, which, by the way, the demonic always likes. So Paul 
actually, they, they saw Paul cast out a demon and <clears throat> they found another demon-possessed guy and that's, where, and that's where we find this. It says, in the, in the name, the sons of Sceva, in the name of Paul's God, Jesus Christ, we command you to come out. And it, Scripture doesn't say it, but I think the demon cleared its voice. <clears throat> yeah, Jesus we know. Paul's name we recognize. And uh, just think about that. Paul's name we recognize. Uh, Paul, we, we've heard about Paul. We get, we get, we get Paul reports in the daily uh, you know, briefings. We know, Paul's this, we, we, we know about Paul. Paul used to be on our side. Paul's not on our side anymore. Uh, and he is creating quite a, uh, how do you know about, how do you know about Paul? I mean, Paul's like, I mean, Paul's in Corinth right now. Paul's not, you're not saying you've seen Paul in Ephesus. Uh, we've recognized the name of Paul, but he's not like, he's not here. <laughs> I mean, but you, we've never heard of you. Now, it says, and very clearly, that this man who is demon-possessed overpowered the seven sons of Sceva and beat them. I mean, this is, this is in the Bible. Beat them bloody and, and naked, and they ran out of the house just to save their lives. And by the way, they're on the same team as the demon-possessed man, but they don't know it. Now, I talked about this in the first service. I'm going to give you a little bit of local wisdom from northeastern Kentucky. Any of you ever watched two people fight? Nobody? It's a classy society we have here. (laughs) I know that ain't true. Yeah, so you watch two people fight. At the end of the fight, depending on who you're talking to, sometimes this person thinks they won, and sometimes this person thinks they won, right? But here is an absolute truth. It's not always who's the bloodiest or who got hit the most times or who's the first one up. You know, it depends on who you ask. But here's an absolute truth. If you started the fight with pants on and when the fight's over, your pants are off, you lost the fight. <laughs> All right? Just, just, just a truth. And so... This is where we get the term uh, that somebody got their pants beat off of them. Uh, uh, so you know, thank, thank Paul for that. So this demon-possessed man overwhelmed them, beat them senseless. And I love this. The Lord through, I mean, obviously he's in charge of all of this. This story could have been told and that guy got licked like nobody's business and still had clothes on. I mean, they could have won and still had clothes on, but the Lord, in His sovereign wisdom, stripped him of his clothes, all of their clothes too. That's just that's awesome. That's just insult to injury. Already, not yet. It's stuff like that. That has already happened, and that gives me confidence for the not yet, right? Okay, so look at verse 17. And this became known, not the teaching of Paul, not the demonstration of real exorcisms, but the, exorc- the guy who is possessed overcoming the exorcists, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, Jews and Greeks. God used the work of Satan to manifest the obvious wildness of the gospel. And then it says, and fear, and this is not the good fear, this is not reverential awe, this is the word phobos. Dread fell upon them all. The first thing they thought was not laughter. The first thing they thought when they saw this was, oh boy. Why? Because they're witches and prostitutes. Sorcerers. They're dark. Far from the Lord. Also, many those who were now believers, listen, what were they now? What do they do? Confessed and divulged their practices. Those who were already Christians started confessing that they were witches. They were already a Christian, but now they want to be Christian. 
A number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together, burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it to come to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Look here, here's the first things that I want. I want you to know this is the founding of the church. They extolled Jesus greatly. That means to praise Him enthusiastically. That was the first thing that happened. When they began to see the difference between being a Christian and being Christian, they praised God enthusiastically and not in a church service, but at the neighbor's fence and at their cubicle at work. And when they were going shopping, everywhere they went, they were extolling if praise enthusiastically to those. The gospel was on their lips and it changed the culture. But first people had to be afraid. They had to recognize their sin and and live in terror for a moment. And then God's people could step in and extol the praise of Jesus Christ and the remedy is healing and bringing darkness into light. And it transformed people's lives incredibly because the church was reaching dirty people, poor people, Possessed people, addicted people, poor people, broken people, prisoners, rejects. But you get over to Revelation chapter 2. Sixty years later, Jesus said, boy, you guys are just squeaky clean, aren't you? Oh, I love what you believe. And I love that you have a good hard line on what's right and what's wrong. But where'd the grime go? Where'd your heart for broken people go? Where'd the brokenness go? Your church has had 60 years and keeps getting cleaner and cleaner and cleaner. Which is proof that you lost your first love because even Jesus' life didn't get cleaner and cleaner and cleaner. It kept reaching. Church of Ephesus was founded with prostitutes and witches. And if we want to live like a Christian, our church will get cleaner and cleaner and cleaner. But if we want to live like Christ, there's going to be room for witches and prostitutes and drug addicts and down and outers and people that will hurt us and abuse us. But you know what? That's okay because I'm going to patiently endure. Because of the already, I can endure until the not yet. So I want to challenge you with that. I don't know what it means. Does that mean that we should not be clean? No, no, it definitely means we should. Holiness, really, that's the top of the list. Holiness, that's the thing God calls us to put on. But while we're holy, we patiently endure. While we are, see, there are dozens of people in this church right now that, have, that are saying yes to every question. Yes, growing rapidly in the Word, ministering to people. Every opportunity is yes, extolling the, the praises enthusiastically of Jesus Christ. There are dozens who want to, mean to, just haven't got the, I mean, it's an every now and then yes. It's a, if it's comfortable, if I have time, if I have the money, if I have the whatever. I mean, it's, it's I know what's right, but I just, not always. Not ready for the always yes. But there are hundreds, hundreds in our church that love church. I mean, haven't said yes to everything, haven't said yes to most things, but feel better when they're here. And that's okay. That's okay for now. But wherever you are, it is easy to believe that everybody else is there. That if you're grumbling and complaining, everybody else has got the same grumble and complaint. If you're 100% bought in, it's so easy to get frustrated at those who aren't. And if you're just living a ho-hum, lukewarm Christianity, it's so easy to think that everybody else is too. But listen, the beauty of being in a church is that it draws like a gravitational pull from the inside. And so we should be drawing. And so the dozens and dozens, hundreds, listen to this. There are 40, 
thousand people in Pope County that do not have church affiliation. If you asked 40,000 people, where do you go to church? They'd say, I don't go to church. Let me ask you this. How many people do you know if you say, where do you go to church, that they wouldn't give you a church name? Well, you know what that means? Is that our influence is just within a brotherhood. Who we're willing to talk to are people that look safe already. People we've known for a long time. So before we pat ourselves on our back for how doctrinally sound we are and the practices and the ministries that we offer, we need to be asking ourselves, where's the grime? Where are people coming out of darkness into light? Where, where, where are people that are broken and finding healing? That's how you know if you're Christ or someone who is a Christian. I hate to even have to use that as an illustration. But that, that, that name has been robbed from us while we let it go. You know that word is only found three times in all of Scripture. Christian, three times in Scripture. Never with a definite article. This morning I want us to pray. You stand with me, please. Chris will come. Chris is going to sing. I know we're running a little late. But I want, I want to challenge you on this. So this morning, if you're here, well, you are here. If you're here and you're ready to say, I don't know what all that means, but I want to say yes every time. I want to, I want to be a person who says yes every time. The, the first yes is my every yes. And... It doesn't mean you want to, but it means you've learned that you can trust Him. So this morning, we're going to sing. I'm going to, I want no, nobody. I want you to close your eyes and bow your heads. Nobody's looking at me. Nobody's looking at Chris. But if you are willing to just say yes this morning, or maybe take a step from wherever you are and just take a step more toward Christ. I just want you to lift your hand. We're going to let Chris sing, but this is our prayer. Every question is yes in Christ. Lord, we thank you for your calling upon our lives. And Lord, this morning I pray that we would allow you to be a gravitational pull through us. Wherever we are, we are reaching out. We are, we are pulling people, drawing people to the life of Jesus Christ. And there we find hope. There we find joy, peace. And Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes to see and spirit to hear. Lord, give us, give us the ability to not hear a message, but to hear your message. What you're saying to our church, in Jesus' name we pray. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.